Hello, my geeselings. I'm sitting here in Chicago. It's super hot right now, and my air conditioning isn't working, which is why my hair is all wet because I've not because of sweat, but because I've been having to take a lot of cold showers just to keep from losing my mind. This episode is with Richard Kimberly Heck, a professor at Brown. And I have a feeling that even a hundred episodes from now, if I get that far, I'll look back and think this is one of the best ones I've done. Ricky started out at Duke. Well, that's where they got their bachelor's degree. And then they got a, a BPhil from Oxford and their PhD at MIT before teaching at Harvard for 14 years and then going to Brown. One of the reasons that this conversation sticks out for me and why I think I'll remember it so fondly is that it's on a topic that I hadn't even known existed, which is the philosophy of pornography. And I'm assuming that most of my listeners haven't ever thought or heard of that either. And in our conversation, we really start from the beginning, which is how Professor Heck moved from math and logic, which is what I'm doing, to the philosophy of pornography. And we talk about the difficulties of studying that topic as an academic before talking about how, how one even goes about defining pornography as a philosopher. Beyond that, or after that, we get into some of the topics that Ricky studies and that Ricky has encountered in the literature. Because one of the really amazing things about this conversation for me was that not only has Professor Heck contributed to the field, but they have a pretty astounding command of the literature. So I was able to get a really good survey of what's going on in the area. So we talk about aesthetics, what distinguishes good pornography from bad pornography, what feminist pornography is, the transformative power of trans, queer, and feminist pornography, and all sorts of things. And disclosure, we actually did a second episode about a week later because I, I'm I'm running through my backlog of podcasts right now. So I have plenty in the tank. So we don't get through get to all the topics I had in mind, but after our second conversation, we really did. So without any further ado, I I think you're whoever you are, you're really going to like this episode. So enjoy it. been eagerly anticipating this conversation because one I'm just curious in general and the philosophy of pornography was not a subject I had even realized existed mm -hmm. until uh, I was told that you did philosophy of math and logic in Frega when I was looking at schools uh -huh. I saw your uh, your website at Brown but I've also never really thought much about gender identity either until relatively recently mm -hmm. so seemed like a a good excuse to reach out to you uh -huh. so thanks again for coming and talking with sure. me about this but i imagine that somebody who is interested in the philosophy of pornography and gender identity 
also has a very interesting background or a non-traditional philosophical background, to say the least. So I was looking at your website and you started out in math and computer science and then circled around to philosophy. So what what went into the decision to go to philosophy from those things to begin with? Um, so in some ways, the decision was very practical. Um, I had always been you know, good at math. I was, uh, um, you know, that was the thing I had always been, you know, a star at. And I won the North Carolina State Mathematics Contest as a junior in high school and went to Duke on a scholarship that came out of that. But I realized at a certain point during my undergraduate education that there was something that the really, really good mathematicians had that I just didn't have. And I, you know, if, if you handed me a problem and told me to solve it, I could solve it. I mean, even I didn't even necessarily need to know a lot about the area to be able to solve the problem. But oh, wow. the part of coming up with problems of my own to solve, the kind of creative aspect of mathematics, that I just didn't have. And I, you know, so I was sort of falling behind uh, the other students in the in the class who were, you know, I don't know how much you know about mathematics research, but, you know, it it's almost as if if you haven't proved some great theorem by the time you're 25, you're you're like washed up. I mean, mathematics is very much a young man's game, and I think you know it's not that you can't remain productive, but people don't like become great mathematicians at the age of 40. I mean, you, you start out a great mathematician. And I, you know, so I, I kind of realized that I, that just wasn't going to be what I was going to do. And fortunately for me, I had kind of fallen in love with philosophy anyway, as a, um, North Carolina has this, this summer thing called the governor's school, which brings together gifted and talented students from all over the state and i had attended that as a you know for mathematics but as part of they kind of had um a lot of other enrichment stuff that went on and so i took a philosophy class there as a after my junior year i think it was i can't remember after after anyway somewhere in late high school i took a philosophy class which was still unusual for someone to do that so i kind of got interested in it early and then kind of fell back in love with it in college. I took, you know, obviously had the opportunity to take more classes and just got totally enamored by it. And that was kind of that. And But, you know, oddly enough, my initial interests were not in philosophy, math, and logic. I was really looking for something very different from what I had done before. And so I kind of fell into an interest in um in Wittgenstein uh at that time and from that kind of morphed into Frege and other stuff but that's kind of the that's how I got into it and Frege so why did you gravitate towards Frege obviously he's a towering figure yeah um philosophy I so I I took a course my, I had two big mentors when I was at Duke. One was a guy named David Sanford who supervised my thesis. He's done a lot of work on uh, vagueness and conditionals and stuff like that. He's long since retired now. But the other guy was a guy named Carl Posey who now teaches at um, 
University of Tel Aviv, I think. And he taught a course on a, a graduate seminar on sort of analytic philosophy when I was a junior, I think. And I, in that course, we read Frege and Wittgenstein and Russell and Carnap and Quine. And so I, that was my introduction to all those figures. And one of the people we read was Dummett. And I really became enamored with Michael Dummett's work. And so I applied for a Marshall scholarship specifically so that I could go to Oxford and work with Michael Dummett. Oh, did you study with him? Yeah. So I, that's, oh, that, that's and amazing. I, I uh, kind of long story about how I got the Marshall, but, um, yeah. anyway, I ended up Heim with the Marshall. Gaithman, who I met. Yeah. Who I mentioned is always talking about Michael Dummett. He's yeah, one of his, Dummett, Dummett his favorite, was more contemporary philosophers. An extraordinary person, um, and you know, I I I ended up being able to work with him in Oxford, and that really, you know, I mean, I knew his it was his work on Frege that I knew, and so you know, that's what I wanted to study with him, and so by coincidence, after I left. Um, uh, Oxford and went to MIT, you know, George Bulos was at MIT and had been, wor I saw him give a paper at Oxford on Frege. And so that was an obvious kind of transition to continue working on Frege with him. And so, you know, that's, that's what I ended up doing. Okay. And then the next transition, which seems much more recent, and I'm sure you're still doing work in logic, but a switch to pornography and gender identity. And so what precipitated that change? Um, so I have always, yeah, it's hard to know which side of us to start with. Um, I've had, if there's anything you don't want to discuss, I mean, there are fine. sort of two things that come together and actually the answer to those two questions is actually different, but on the pornography thing, um, I, partly was kind of looking for something different to do. Um, it's one of the things I love about philosophy is that it's, although it's, it's much more specialized now than it was when I was a graduate student, you know, 30 years ago, but more than that now, 35 years ago when I started grad school. Mm -hmm. um, but it's not so specialized that if you want to make the kind of change that I made, that you can't do it. I mean, it just takes time. Right. I mean, uh, contrast, say, physics, where if you wanted to switch from doing particle physics to solid state physics, you practically have to go back to grad school to, to do that. I mean, it's, it's so specialized. And so I was kind of, you know, looking for a new challenge, uh, feeling like I'd said most of what I had to say about a lot of the other things I'd worked on. And so there was that side of it. But also, it turns out that most of the analytic literature on pornography, or at least a you know a very sizable chunk of it, grows out of philosophy of language, which I've worked on extensively. So, the the kind of big figure in analytic thought about pornography is Ray Langton, who was at MIT not long ago. And Ray Langton. Ray Langton. R A E is how she spells her first name. Langton. She's now a professor okay. at the University of Cambridge. She's British. Um, and Ray uh, wrote a very famous paper uh, called Speech Acts and Unspeakable Acts in 1993, which more or less applies ideas of Austin's. Um, uh, 
John Austin to speech act yeah. to um to the and you know tries to take extremely seriously the idea that pornography is speech, so she wants to treat it as a speech act, and so she brings in all this kind of Austinian stuff to kind of explain how pornography works as black magic as you know one might say um has you know various kinds of harmful effects and so that kind of gave me a bit of a leg up in the sense that um you know i already work our philosophy of language was already a thing i did so i was able to so the first thing i taught on this was a course on um that was more generally on hate speech than on pornography, but pornography was the kind of central example because that's the, the analytic literature on hate speech grows out of the pornography literature. It's all, it's all again, kind of grounded in Austin and speech act theory and, and stuff like that. So that was, um, so that made it kind of an easy route uh, for me. I you know had a kind of toe in that anyway. And, the final piece of the puzzle is that I've always kind of from way, way back, I mean, I've just had a kind of abiding interest in, in feminist and queer pornography and have, you know, generally, you know, thought that most mainstream pornography was at, at, at best in really bad taste and at worst, you know, harmful. And, but on the other hand, thinking that, there's room for a kind of pornography that's different and, you know, is maybe not only not in bad taste, um, but could even be helpful in reshaping our understandings of, of sexuality and, and things like that. And so I wanted to, um, you know, I, in a way I kind of discovered that I could put these two things together, this sort of extra philosophical interest in, feminist and queer pornography and a kind of philosophical interest in pornography. And, you know, I, so I just sort of started doing that. And of course found out that the students were fascinated with this sort of topic and more than happy to have me teach it. Um, okay. That, that's all very neat. I like that there are the two sides to it. Now, before though, we go into the discussion of the philosophy itself so I've been wanting to do a podcast for a long time and I was naturally speaking with my therapist about doing a podcast mm -hmm. and he's an academic and he immediately had concerns about it because in this day and age, anything you say uh, can be taken out of context and used against you. Mm -hmm. And that's just uh, an innocuous podcast. But then you get into topics like pornography. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> and even he, he thought that even mentioning being in therapy uh, is something that's mm -hmm. negatively stigmatized in that way. So presumably speaking about pornography is very difficult in an academic setting. And naturally, I mean, you're much further along in your career than I am. Yeah. and You can get away with things that I can't get away with. But how do you navigate that? No, I mean, that's a great I question. Mean, with Because I think I saw one, one paper title of yours had like blowjob in the title even. Oh, yeah, that's, yeah. I know, but that's actually, the, that one is a, is actually a, um, is a, uh, 
compilation of things other people wrote but um but yeah okay. it's 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 still um i i have many people um tell me that they would never i mean that they would not feel comfortable teaching the kind of things i teach um and do and doing the kinds of things in the classroom that i do um um because of the current environment that so it's it's sometimes i think i'm crazy um for for even trying to do what i'm trying to do um mm. but the reception from you know i think it's the reception from the students is what's kind of kept me going on this that they they i i i, I just can't tell you how amazing brown students are <laughs> they're just they are so committed to their to the to what they're doing academically um and so right. it's been a while since i applied to undergrad but what i seem to recall is that the curriculum there is very unstructured yes and you can sort of that's right. you only take classes really if you want that's to take right. them so that that's probably that's what uh, that's helpful. what does the trick um i before mm -hmm. i taught here i taught at harvard and harvard is not as heavily structured as columbia say is but it is very there are a lot of requirements um, and my experience there um, was that by the end of the freshman year, the students just felt kind of beat down that they, you know, maybe they had gotten to take a couple of classes that they really wanted to take. Um, but at Brown, that never happens. I mean, students take what they want to take and they, so they, the, the sort of enthusiasm they have when they come in never leaves. And they, you know, so they, they've just been so, um, and and they're they're so kind of respectful and kind to each other. That's critical in a class like this, where people have, you know, come in with a lot of different attitudes about pornography and about sexuality. Um, and there's a lot of opportunities for people to to, to be upset. Um, and so, mm -hmm. managing, you know, that's not something I have to manage in a logic class. Um, but in a pornography class, that becomes an issue. But you know, kind of, uh, I think the students, you know, watch out for each other. And if, if anything comes up, you know, I'll hear from more than one person about it. Um, so, you know, and I, I have to be kind of humble, I'm, you know, too, in, in the way I do this and tell the students, you know, I may, I may screw up from time to time. And I think as long as you're honest about that, they're, they're forthcoming. And, it's, you know, I, I have been written up in the, uh, right wing, uh, press about some of the stuff um i you know and before i did any of this i consulted a lot with the administration to make sure that people were going to support what i was wanting to do i got a lot of good advice about um you know how to present things to the class um i kind of make people sign a kind of consent form um that they understand you know what they're getting themselves into um so you know, but it, it's, you know, on the other hand, though, you know, when I, I've, I've not had an opportunity to give many public lectures on this kind of stuff, but I gave a couple talks a, a couple years ago, and I've, I've, I've said to several people that kind of coming out as a, as a person who knows a lot about pornography is more difficult than coming out as genderqueer, which I did a few years before that and you know people look at you funny <laughs> you're like 
Um, mm-hmm. You know, part of one of my shticks about this is that philosophers talk about pornography in the abstract all the time, but almost never will you see a, a philosopher talk about an actual instance of pornography and like analyze it and tell you about it. That's extremely rare. And one of the most famous examples, I won't say who it is, where philosophers do talk specifically about a particular piece of pornography, it's quite clear that they've never actually seen it. They're, it's all secondhand. And because if you look at it, you, you see that they're misquoting it and other things. And it's outside philosophy, that's not true. There's actually tremendous work in film theory and sexuality studies and um, sociology about pornography. But philosophers don't actually talk about pornography. So, you know, when I talk about pornography in my papers, I, I try to correct that. And, you know, I've, I've seen a lot of these the classics and, you know, a lot of contemporary pornography. And I don't think I'm alone at that, but it's not common for people to get up in front of an audience and say, hey, I, I've seen a lot of porn. Um, and I've enjoyed a lot of it, you know, and some of it's really good. And that just, you know, it, people look at you funny. Yeah, I imagine that. <laughs> so um, in talking about or just saying on the podcast that I'm in therapy, not only do I have I am too, interest in disclosure. Yeah, so. I had a, I had a purpose in in talking about it. One, I would really like to have analysts on the podcast mm-hmm. and talk to them about psychoanalysis because even though it's not something I'm studying, it's something that I'm very interested mm-hmm. in. But I, I don't see myself as a hero. But I also like the idea of possibly contributing on some minor level to its destigmatization. Mm-hmm. And being that you have not only an academic interest in pornography, I imagine that you're having a personal interest and believing in its positive power also sort of gives you uh, the courage. I'm sorry for using that word, but the courage to talk about it. But so, yeah, let's, let's talk about porn. Um, So what porn is has changed over time. Mm -hmm. I imagine that in uh, Victorian England, which I don't know anything about flashing your calf might've been decried as pornographic. So when you're writing about pornography in a contemporary setting, how do you define pornography? So there is, a, as you might guess, there is a, a literature on how to define pornography. I guess the most, the best yeah. known paper by, on this probably is by a guy named Michael Ray, uh, who's a metaphysician. Um, just came out with a paper on gender identity, actually, which I, I need to read. Um, but he, he has a paper in which he attempts to define pornography. And like all attempts to define something, give necessary and sufficient conditions, it fails. Um, in fact, their counterexamples are legion once you start seeing how to construct them. And so I, I generally am with Quine on this kind of thing, that I, I don't think it's possible to define anything, really. Um, I, I don't I don't really believe in the analytic synthetic distinction, um, and so I I don't tend to worry too much about it, you know getting a a really adequate definition. So, but of course we need a kind of working something or other. So, what I tend to operate with is the idea that pornography is 
first of all, it's it's sort of it's explicit in a in a certain sense that it you know it 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 either shows or describes um, genitalia, sexual acts in detail, um, and that it is in in some sense that it's very hard to pin down. Um, this is where the really difficult work is. Um, is in try it. it it is intended to facilitate sexual arousal in in its in its viewing audience so that's that's the kind of crucial piece right that there's a there's a kind of typical so i think one of the things that ray gets right in his paper is that he he starts by trying to describe what it is for someone to use a thing pornographically right so what is it to to employ hmm, that, something for a kind of pornographic purpose? And then he says, well, pornography is what's kind of, you know, it's sort of intended purposes at, or I can't remember exactly how he does this. But that, that see. seems right, right. Right, because some somebody is is turned on by trees. So yeah, pictures right. of trees could be used as pornography yeah. by them. Yeah, but you probably okay. wouldn't want to say it was porn, right? Because that's not its ordinary right. use or typical use or it's something sort of, like that. Sort of like with art. I mean, somebody will want to say that, oh, that that sunset is so beautiful. It's art, but it doesn't have that sort of purpose and doubt in it. Yeah, it's not created to have resonance or yeah with um, an audience. I think I can't remember. Yeah, so so I think that's you know that gives us a kind of working definition, and it's interesting. I mean, I we we have I have um, I started out the first time I taught something that was really on pornography. Um, I think I did this the last time too. I, I started out by having students watch some clips from this website called Beautiful Agony, and Beautiful Agony is a is a um, what they what they do is they photograph people from the neck up masturbating. So all the only thing you see is their facial expressions as they become aroused and then reach orgasm. And so it's a video it's or a video. Are pictures. Yeah. Um, and so I, I show this to my students, um, in part to, to, there are two things I want them to get out of this. One is that, um, it always leads to a question as to whether it's pornography or not, because some of the students are quite sure that it's porn because it's incredibly hot to watch, um, this you know, even though it's, you know, it couldn't be less explicit. You don't see anything, you know, that's going on. Sometimes if it's, if it's a, a female-bodied sort of person, you can hear a vibrator um, buzzing away. Um, but when, when you say it's incredibly hot to watch, you mean it's arousing? Yeah, yeah, that's right. Okay. Um, and so, it's just it's just not a typical academic term, so oh, I just yeah, wanted to make yeah, sure sorry. that we were using it in yeah. the same way. Yep. <laughs> yeah, and so so that it's that that makes the students think, oh, it's porn, right? Because you know, in effect, that what they're yeah. thinking is, I could use this as an aid to masturbation, so I guess it must be porn. And but on the other hand, it's it's so inexplicit that a lot of the students want to say it's not porn. So that's the first thing and the the second thing that i that i want them to get out of this which i think is really important um and i think much of the literature on pornography misses this point is that uh, i think a lot of times people just assume that it's the explicitness of pornography that's arousing and in some sense i mean that there's something to be said for that but 
it's not just the explicitness that's arousing because I have these clips from Beautiful Agony and they're as inexplicit as they could possibly be. And yet they're incredibly arousing. So the, mm -hmm. you know, I think in, in really good pornography, um, I think the, the people, mostly women, uh, making it understand this. They are able to both combine the explicitness with other elements like showing people's faces to be arousing in a, in a different way or in a more sophisticated way. Um, Something that comes to mind uh, in today's day and age is foot pictures. Uh, which you're probably aware of. Uh, I mean, that is certainly uh, masturbation fodder for a lot of yeah. people. And it's hard to imagine pornography that is less explicit than just pictures of yeah. feet. Uh, people get off on all kinds of things. <laughs> I guess you're probably familiar mm -hmm. with Internet Rule 42, which is if it exists, there's a porn for it. Um, yes. So, yeah. You know, people get off on people popping balloons and, you know, all kinds of things. So. Um, oh really yeah balloon porn <laughs> so, not one that i've ever quite understood but yeah naked women popping balloons um, or sometimes even clothes women popping balloons so you mentioned this paper on defining porn and you said that there are there's a lot of literature on that. What are some of the other central topics in literature on pornography? So I was I yeah. was thinking just when I was thinking about what what pornographic literature might be, I was thinking obviously there's going to be a, an ethical dimension. But then I kind of stopped there. Yeah. I didn't know what else to expect. Yeah, in philosophy it's overwhelmingly ethical and political. Um so the um, you know, the, the, the great bulk of the literature is on um, questions about how, well, I suppose I should say first, whether and how, whether and if so, how pornography um, has social harms um, or, and interpersonal harms, I suppose. Usually people are more focused on the kind of socio-political dimensions of this. Um, and and then kind of questions about, you know, First Amendment type issues, free speech type issues. Um, that's where most of the most of the philosophical literature is. Um, but there is there is a, a, a smaller literature, but I think in a way I find it more interesting on the aesthetics of pornography. The kind of core issue there, this is one of these cases, I think, where you, you kind of the way the issue is framed is kind of misleading, but the way it's typically, the way it sort of starts out is with the question whether pornography can be art or not. Um, I, I don't personally find that question framed that way to be very interesting because I tend to think of art as a kind of honorific. Um, like, Well, it seems like the answer is obviously yes to me. Just in, I think, uh, so my dad has a, a very large collection of art books. And I recall stumbling on a young age, at a young age upon, and I don't know if this is how you pronounce his name, uh, Mapplethorpe, Mapplethorpe or Maplethorpe. I think it's Maplethorpe. Maplethorpe. Actually. I'm not totally sure. Yeah, and these are very like erotic, yeah. intense images, but they're also uh, clearly art. Though I'm guessing you're 
right wing detractors would not want to grant that. But for me, I mean, it's clearly art. So, yeah, I yeah, imagine the, that you sort the, of think view that question as a non-issue. Yeah, the philosophers on this side are going to deny that it's pornography, um, but for okay. reasons that it's so it it the the basic the the main, the structure of the argument that so the, the the first philosopher to give an argument like this is a guy named Gerald Levinson who's mostly does aesthetics and most of the people who've written about this are are from the aesthetics world um, and the basic structure of the argument is that there's a there's a view in aesthetics that part of what makes art art is that it's even even when it is representational of some subject, the medium of the representation is important, right, to your appreciation of it, like how the paint was used and those kinds of things, the kinds of choices that were made in the in in crafting the representation, and so that's supposed to be distinctive of art that it's what people call manner specific the way in which the representation performed is really critical um, to your appreciation of the thing and then but pornography they say is is manner in specific that it's it's supposed to be transparent so that pornography is just a kind of it's like a telephone or something right that it's or it's like watching each other on a, on this screen that you you don't care about the representation what you care about is the thing that's being presented and the film say you know typically people talk about film um is just a kind of window onto a scene that you happen not to be present at right so that's it's as if you're just hmm. watching something happen um, at a distance, yeah, and so those two aspects are 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 in competition, right? That I'm 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 am I am I paying attention to the medium of representation, or aren't I paying attention to the medium of representation? And so, in the case of the case of Maplethorpe, yeah, these are you know you you know the famous photograph of a man peeing in another man's mouth um, caused all kinds. Of, I I remember when these photographs were first published. Uh, when I was in college, I think, and it, you can imagine the controversy um, back then, let alone today. Um, and so the the subject matter is sort of sexually explicit, but the you know if you you don't have to look at the photographs for very long to be kind of impressed by the kind of architectural quay in which the photograph is composed and all those sorts of factors. And so people will say. I think in the end, the best version of this view is that, um, I can't remember who frames it this way, who is it that puts it this way? I can't remember offhand, um, is that it's impossible to appreciate something artistically and pornographically at the same time, because these two features of are you or aren't you paying attention to the representation compete with each other? Now, in the end, I don't think this works because I, th I still think there are counterexamples. Um, but that's the that's the kind of feel of the argument. Um, and uh, I, it's a, we we spent a good bit of time with this literature in class uh, this spring, and it was it was hard. I think most students kind of felt much like you do that it's just obvious that pornography can be art because here's these things. And I think the critical you know. operator there though is can because I'm finding 
the argument somewhat convincing. Well, maybe I'm not even paying attention to the argument at all, but the idea of like some garden variety, uh, amateur pornography yeah. where somebody's just videotaping themselves having drunk, drunk sex, I mean, doesn't strike me as art. Yeah. But so the idea that it can be art, it can be elevated, that idea resonates with yeah, me. Yeah, there's a really nice paper by um, Jesse Prinz, uh, who mostly does like philosophy of mind and stuff, um, and a woman named Paula von Brabant called Why Does Porn Suck? I think is the title of the paper. And it comes to a conclusion like this, that what they suggest is that they go through a ton of different reasons to, to think sort of why is pornography, why does pornography so rarely rise to the level of art? Um, and what they end up suggesting is that there's just a lack of, trying, the words they use are something like, there's no striving for excellence. There's just, there's there's no kind of attempt to make something great you know and i think in in there are seems like an overgeneralization yeah i mean they give they give some kind of examples that they think count as art um in the end i think that's probably too high a standard i mean i i at one point in the paper they say pornography is bad pornography is very often bad in the way that spielberg is bad because it it kind of has very formulaic ways of arousing you um, whereas their thought is that Spielberg has these sort of very formulaic ways of kind of tugging on your emotions and things like that. And I think that's right. And that sort of, well, the part that's right is that really good pornography finds new ways to arouse you. It makes you kind of aware of your own preferences and idiosyncrasies and, you know, it surprises you. And that's, you know, so I think that's possible. Um, and, but the, the, when, when I have my students read this, they often say, wait, I, I love Spielberg, right? You know, mm. so, you know, my thought, my thought in a way is that, look, if there are, there are, truly there are great things about Spielberg, right? I mean, Close Encounters of the Third Kind, I love that movie. So if, if pornography could be good in the way that Spielberg is good, I'd be perfectly happy. You know, if it, if it doesn't rise to the level of Bergman or, you know, art film, that's, you know, that's one thing. But if it, if pornography could simply be good in the way in which good Hollywood movies are good, I would be fine. Right. And most, most Hollywood movies, nobody's going to confuse with, with art. Um, but it doesn't mean they're not enjoyable and interesting and, you know, worth thinking about and things like that. And, you know, the, the, the real claim in the, in the, and this comes out very explicitly in some authors in this literature is that, that pornography simply isn't eligible for aesthetic appreciation, that there's just no, forget about whether it's art, right? Lots of things can be kind of aesthetically appreciated that you wouldn't think of as art. And what the, um, you know, that, so the, the thing I'm kind of interested in myself is kind of trying to articulate ways in which it's possible to art, to aesthetically appreciate certain kinds of pornography without having to kind of do away with the pornographic aspect, as it were. And you can, I think the, the great filmmakers here, I mean, they, they find 
you know, the, the way they choose to shoot sexual scenes, the kinds of things they're highlighting. I mean, there are all kinds of choices that you're, you're making when you, when you shoot sex and those choices can be made well or badly. Um, and in ways that are kind of interesting and thought provoking or not interesting and thought provoking. And the best directors here are really, really good at what they do. And, um, you know, I think produce stuff that, that well repays thought and conversation. And, um, you know, so that's something I try to bring out in my teaching of, of this kind of material too. So maybe it's just a product of my generation, but I was almost taken aback when I was looking at some of your papers by your use of the word film to describe pornography. Because when I think of pornography, I think, I think of, uh, Pornhub things yeah. like just these little sort of disposable clips. Uh, but then as I thought a little bit more about it, uh, what came to mind was midnight cowboy. Mm-hmm. And do you know that movie? Yeah, I, I have not seen it, but I know of it. I haven't seen it for a long time, but there is a scene in which, or maybe there are many scenes in which the protagonist is really down on his luck Mm -hmm. and he goes to a pornographic movie theater and lets other men masturbate him for money. Mm -hmm. And so it just occurred to me, oh, there used to be, and maybe there still are pornographic movie theaters where presumably they showed pornographic films. That's right. So... What are these pornographic yeah. films, uh, the ones that you're referencing, and are they still being made? And yeah, what? so probably the, the 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 most. So one of the things I did in my um, both times I've taught pornography, I've done this. There's it turns out that there are two states in the U.S. where it's legal to shoot pornography. One of them is Las, is Nevada, and the other is New Hampshire, which is weird because most pornography is shot in really? California. But yeah, um, that's what yeah, I thought. So, Beats me, right? But it turns out that New Hampshire is one of the states that it's legal to shoot pornography in. And I totally by accident, I think I, I think it was on, I think I saw her posting on Twitter. There's this this director named Angie Roundtree, um, who who shoots in. She lives in a small town in New Hampshire, and she and her husband have for. So they they run a, a website called wasteland.com, which is the oldest BDSM website on the web. It goes back to their mid-90s. And she also has a site called sssh.com, which is a um, women-oriented website, pornographic website. So they she produces um, material for, you know, intended for to appeal to women. Um, and she, um, makes, she's done a lot of kind of shorter things like, you know, 10, 15 minute type videos, but she's also, um, you know, over the last probably 10 years started producing more kind of long form narratively driven films. Um, so her, the one we want, what was the title of the one we just watched? Oh, it's called The Mirror Game. Um, it's about, it's probably like 45 minutes, but it's, you know, it's got a story. It follows this woman through this kind of weird supernatural thing that happens to her um, that turns her into a sex fiend, basically. Um, and 
it's you know it's it's pornographic in content but she she releases it in three different forms there's the full-blown x-rated pornographic version there's a kind of somewhat toned down um less still explicit but less explicit kind of art film version that she shows at you know art film festivals and then there's like a cable tv version that kind of strips out all the um all the explicitness and her films have won you know serious awards at non-pornographic film festivals and she's an incredibly gifted director but the you know but there's also this kind of full-blown pornographic version and they're they're wonderful films um and you know i think um there's the the i think her best film is one called gone uh which i um i don't want to give you give away the story because that's part of the there's a kind of shock that comes at the end that um is part of the experience of watching the film but it's it's about a woman who has lost her husband and um you know he he's left and they had a BDSM relationship and the, the, the film is really about her struggle to kind of come to terms with the loss of a sexual partner, which is something that doesn't get talked about a lot. Um, that, you know, there's a, there's a certain kind of, I mean, we all know this from breaking up with people and stuff, that there can be a very particular kind of pain that's associated with the loss of a sexual partner. And that's what the film is about. Um, but in the course of telling the story of her attempt to come to terms with this, you know, it shows you what their sex life was like. And, you know, you see her, her tied up and, and whipped and all kinds of other stuff. And, you know, and, but also the tenderness and love that, that characterized their relationship. It's a beautiful film. Um, I mean, it's, it's, um, I mean, I, when I showed it to my students, um, you know, people were in tears um, after it. It's it's incredibly moving and beautiful. Um, and so these things do exist. Um, they don't get shown in theaters anymore. They, as you're right, that there used to be theaters like this. They tended to be in seedy parts of town. Um, there was a in a town I grew up in. There was a drive-in that showed pornographic films. That was the first place I ever saw saw pornography. Um, but uh, you know, you have to look for them, but they are out there still. Okay. I Just to satisfy my curiosity, though, so I'm very into fantasy, like mm -hmm. Game of Thrones, that sort mm -hmm. of thing. And I'm wondering what it was in the mirror game that turned the protagonist into a sexual so fiend. She, she, if you can tell me that without yeah, giving so away that, her movie. No, that, one, that one has less of a kind of gotcha moment at the end. Um the uh so it takes place I, i'm trying to remember the so her her husband drags her to a work event that she gets incredibly bored with so she kind of wanders off and ends up in this um kind of a cult bookshop and becomes fascinated with this one book that they have and hmm. the the woman in the store is like no you can't have that book and she talks her into <laughs> to letting her have it and once she gets it home, she starts reading it and finds this spell in it, which she then unintentionally casts. And it like turns, it like does something to her, right? 
And, I'm actually going to have to watch yeah, this movie it's now. It's a great film. It's really, really good. Um, it's funny what, what uh, comes to mind for me when you say that is if this were on Pornhub, she would have gotten to the bookstore, opened the book, and it would have been like a big, beefy man yeah. with a nice like Rolex on. And he would have said, you can't have that book unless. Yeah, and that's right. Taking her to the um, background. But OK, she she fully fleshed out the plot. Yeah. Like, and it's, pun intended. It's, um, <laughs> it's yeah, it's it's as I say, it's really good. I'll, I, mm-hmm. I can probably arrange for you to see it because Angie and I are in touch, touch about things like this. Oh, so cool. um um yeah she's a really fascinating person um just and and really great with the students i mean it's just, so i i have her come i actually i guess i didn't say this i have her come to campus um and and talk to my students and so we watched um i had had them watch mirror game ahead of time because they had you know it's longer but we watched gone as a group um it was it was not required this was a things students could do if they wanted to so about two-thirds of the students came and um so, that's good yeah so that's we watched good it attendance. in class you know to, together and then they could ask her questions about it and you know how people were interested about how she got into things and you know why she makes the films the way she does and she they they write their own music for the films and so she's very interested and has written some really interesting stuff on the use of of sound and pornography which is a its own kind of topic and um, yeah, and she's she's just great. I mean, just really fascinating person. And um, you know, the students just look. the first time I had her come to a seminar it was a graduate seminar, so the students were a bit older. We ended up going to the there's a bar in the graduate what's called the graduate. Uh, it's kind of these these dorms that are called the graduate center. There's a bar there, and we went there after the meeting, and it was like we were there for like three hours just talking to her about and she had brought this guy who does the camera work for her so we were talking to him too about you know how he shoots things and decisions he makes and it was just really interesting Hmm. yeah when you mention like sound in pornography now i'm just thinking wow there are so many possible topics yeah but given that there are so many possible topics i want to be aware of your time and i want to ask more about your work in particular yeah, sure. I'm, so I'm having a great time were... this, so keep going oh, okay good yeah there were a few threads though in your work that i wanted to ask about mm-hmm. and the first was i saw i don't know where i pulled this but one of your goals is to offer an account of what's problematic about mainstream pornography mm-hmm. without making without dragging all pornography down with it uh of the sort that you you just mentioned so what is wrong with the front page of pornhub basically well yeah so pornhub's its own complicated thing there those people are really evil um there was a piece in the new york yeah there's a piece in the new yorker about i mean i've known this for a long time but there's a piece in the new yorker about pornhub this month that everyone should read um nobody should ever go to pornhub ever um it's okay. yeah, they're 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 not good people um i have some friends that will uh be very upset about yeah that. <laughs> uh, i mean that's it, a lot of people will be um i mean it's it's um, i mean they have it's a long story but you know they, they have more or less destroyed the pornography industry um and you know let it's led to all kinds of problems but the 
so I, I think, I mean, I, I tend to think that there are kind of, it's one of these, you know, what's wrong with mainstream pornography is kind of overdetermined. But, you know, one, I think, you know, the, the sort of classic, so if you read Langton, who is really riffing on Catherine McKinnon, um, this was uh, speech acts. Yeah, this. Her, her, I mean, her, her. She tends to argue that pornography. Um, one of the central arguments in her paper is that pornography, in effect, um, promotes state rape. Um, okay. And I. That's that's fascinating. Yeah, I, I, uh, or a, a fascinating contention. Yeah, I, I I tend to think that this is. I, I, there are all kinds of reasons I think this is wrong, um, but um, this is a there's a long so there's this very famous quote by a woman named Robin Morgan from the 70s where she says uh, pornography is the theory and rape is the practice. So the the standard feminist contention, sort of one wing of feminism, um, about pornography is that it promotes rape um, or causes rape or you know take, takes different forms. Um, I tend to think, as many people do, that this is overblown um, and and not terribly plausible. Um, a lot of it's sort of based on very behavioristic ways of thinking about human behavior um, that are long since outdated. But so so I don't think we have to go that far. I mean, I think what I tend to think is that there are kind of norms around sexuality about the way the form sexuality takes in our culture and the norms, the forms that heterosexuality in particular takes in our culture that are really biased towards men. So a, a kind of simple example of this is the so-called orgasm gap that you find that um, this is a pretty crude measure of, of sexual equality, but men who are in heterosexual encounters say, I can't remember exact numbers, let's say they reach orgasm 95% of the time. Women in heterosexual encounters, especially casual heterosexual encounters, will reach orgasm, let's say, 50% of the time, right? And playing devil's advocate, is it at all possible that that just has something to do with our different biologies? Women who are in lesbian encounters reach orgasm okay. a lot of the time. Um, so it's, okay. it's less the body than what's being done with the body. Um, okay. there's a, yeah, there's a, there's a very famous paper on this exact question that compares women, especially by, I mean, the, the great case is bisexual women who, so you just compare like how often when they're in sexual encounters with men and how often they're in sexual encounters with women. Now, I mean, I think, as I say, that's a very crude measure because orgasm is not the end-all and be-all of, of sex, and sometimes people don't want to reach orgasm or they don't care if they reach orgasm. There are lots of other reasons to have sex besides having orgasms. and But nonetheless, it kind of gives you a, a kind of sense for one way in which things might be kind of biased, right? And one of the, I think, you know, especially today, I mean, it's, it's, it's pretty clear um, that pornography has just has become sex education in this country, partly because we don't provide any real sex education to people. So, you know, it's teenagers being teenagers wanting to know about this 
you know, they they go to where they can find what they gather to be information. And I think this connects actually back to this point about transparency that I made before, that part of the difficulty here, I think, is that people tend to think that pornography, excuse the pun, is presenting them with the naked truth about sexuality, that you're just, here, here are some people having sex. This is how it is. This is how it goes. And so people are getting all this information from pornography about sex and a lot of that information is bad i mean it's it 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 reflects these kind of pre-existing cultural norms about sex that are very biased against women and often does so in ways that are really quite exaggerated um i mean i think pornography is even you know most of what you'll find on the front page of pornhub is even more biased um against kind of women in terms of the way the sex is being performed than i think most sex it was say 10 or 15 years ago i mean i i hear from students you know one of the things that's been so fascinating about teaching this stuff is that i i talk to students about their sex lives um a lot you know i mean because they because I teach this course on philosophy of sex and students read stuff and they come to me and say, I've had students literally say to me, I don't know how to be sexual anymore. I, I, I can't do the things I used to do after reading the stuff that I have read. And one of the things that I've had several students tell me is that women is that it is not uncommon nowadays for men to choke women without asking. And that's, you know, I, so I, I've taken to telling my students straight out, that's assault. You know, if you choke somebody without consent, then you have just assaulted them and not even sexual assault. That's like assault, assault. And I, I'm just sort of flabbergasted. I mean, why, how could anybody? It is funny when you mention that, I because it's not that I have done that, but when you say it, I think, yeah, that's probably something like a lot of people do. Yeah. And, and you then know when why, you point out right? that that's assault, yeah. I think, yes, I know why. Yep. And then when you point out that it's assault, I'm like, oh, yeah, I, sh I should have known that yeah. or should have should have thought about it that way. Yeah. So, I mean, there, I think so there are, there are like all these sorts of things that people see in porn and they think, oh, that's normal. That's OK. And yeah. and and then proceed to do. And, you know, and it's and it's not. I mean, you know, so if you if you go, you know, if you were to go on Pornhub and look at 100 best people have done this, I mean, you know, what you find is a lot of what on its surface, at least, is violence against women. And now, in fact, a lot of that is probably consensual, right? <laughs> that, you know, that that's the way these people roll. They've done this before. Maybe they talked about it beforehand, but you don't see any of it. You that. mean in the pornography? Yeah. 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 Okay. So it's a, you know, it's a married, it could be a couple, they're filming themselves and, you know, so, but you don't see that, right? So people just, I think, you know, young, impressionable people just sort of think, oh, that's just what sex is like, right? That's what I'm supposed to do. That's what my partner is going to expect me to do. And yeah, there is a scene like that in Euphoria. Have, have you watched that show? I have show? not seen it. I, I know of it. Yeah. it's been hbo show but mm -hmm. i think it's like the first episode somebody uh chokes a girl and he and she's she like starts crying and she's upset and he just is like oh i thought that like all girls like that mm -hmm. yeah, yeah so, that's right good example yeah 
relevant example. I think so. There are a lot of cases like this. Um, so that's kind of, I mean, my it's kind. Of, you might say this is a kind of working hypothesis um, that one of the ways, anyway, in which pornography has negative effects is through, I think, in reinforcing, but in in this case, I think, creating uh, kind of heter- norms around heterosexuality that are are really. Um, you know, bad for women um, that, that negatively affect women's sexual experience. And, and you know, that kind of trauma, I mean, some of these women have said that it, it was really traumatic for them to be treated this way. Yeah. You know, people slapping them in the and face not, and stuff. I mean, you can't, you, mm-hmm. Jesus. <laughs> and not, not though to detract from that, which I think is more important, but it's also the other side of the coin is it's having a very negative effect on men. If, mm-hmm. if that's what they're thinking that uh, sex is supposed to be like, and, and they're just reflexively uh, assaulting people. And I, you know, I think it's also, I mean, I, I do think, I mean, I, I try to avoid going down the film, you know, the, the sexism is bad for men to root. Uh, it can sound a little um, trivializing, but I, I do think that, um, that men men are not well served either by a lot of these norms that sort of male sexuality is defined in this very narrow way um um very uh there's this wonderful paper actually it's actually it's you might have it's it's online it's easily accessible by a film theorist named richard dyer called gay porn coming to terms and he talks in that in that paper, this was written in the 80s, um, about what he describes as the narrative structure of male sexuality, that it's it's very goal-driven, right? Everything is sort of in the service of ejaculation and orgasm. And he he sort of maps this on to, to sort of narrative structure of gay male pornography itself. And and he, he kind of decries this as sort of, you know, when there's this, I saw it long ago, I saw this, um, there were these like graphs of kind of heterosexual sex and lesbian sex. And women, when women have sex with each other, I mean, you know, generalization, but they just generally aren't as goal oriented as men are. They're much, or sort of, well, either as two men are or as heterosexual couples are, there, it's much more kind of the journey, you know, and not the end product uh, that that characterizes lesbian sex. And you can see this in really good lesbian pornography. I mean, it's just it's just so different from from the the way from hetero. I mean, and not just because it's two women, but it's just it just doesn't have the same. You know, we know where this is going. We know what the goal is. Um, yeah, the end of sex is male orgasm, and that's both in the teleological sense of its goal and also the end in terms of when it's over. And that's just that's not true of, of lesbian sex. There's not a goal in the same way, and it's certainly not over just because one person happened to have an orgasm. And the, you know, so I think men men's sexuality just gets characterized in this very narrow way that we're just not given the opportunity to enjoy so many elements of sex that aren't orgasm focused right i mean it just or don't contribute to orgasm or anything like that and just are 
you know, pleasant in their own right. And, um, you know, let alone the kind of homophobic things that people get into about male sexuality. So I think, I do think it's, you know, men are not well served either. I mean, I think women, you know, are, are harmed in much more dramatic ways, but I think men are, are men could, could well do with a, a reform of our sexuality. So that's the sexist element, but there's also, I take it, a, a racist element to mainstream there, pornography. Uh, yeah, a lot of uh, a lot of uh, so-called interracial porn is really, really, I mean, it's steeped in racial tropes, um, and really, uh, yeah, there's a lot's been written about that. That's yeah, there's a it's it can be pretty bad. Um, what are some of the those the main tropes? So I'll give you a they, kind of un, unusual out. one, um, and th- this actually came up in a film by a woman who is who's really, I mean, generally speaking, she she makes really fantastic films. A woman named Jackie St. James. Um, I had students watch a film of hers called The Submission of Emma Marks, which is just amazing. Um, but she she did a fi- uh, she made a film. Um, so for for some time she. She was a director for a studio called New Sensations, and they had. A, she did a she did a, a a lot of films for them that were like four little vignettes. So they tended to have about five minutes of story and then twenty minutes of sex or something, and there were like four of these. And one of the series that she did was was interracial porn, and some of them were were okay, um, but there was one. That, that was in that was on one of these films which involved a white man no actually it was a black man and a asian woman i'm not sure what exactly her ethnicity is but she's some kind of asian vietnamese maybe let's say um and the whole thing is around it's, it's like organized around how submissive she is and how like catering to his needs she is and stuff which is just like you know this is like the standard racist trope about asian women right that they're so submissive Mm -hmm. and stuff and it's just like i'm now in some ways you might i mean there are things one can say about this that you know the trope is out there and it this is a sexual fantasy and it's just kind of playing with the trope and i have some sympathy for that kind of response but but there's there's sort of nothing in the film that that actually plays with the the trope it just it's just there and it is just kind of blatant in the film and i think the sort of you know beyond that i think there's just the sort of i i remember long ago reading something by noam chomsky about uh, a totally unrelated topic of course but in which noam sort of said that you know, making a big deal of out of race in the wrong way is itself racist. And one of the things that is very typical in interracial porn, I mean, what kind of gives it its bite is just making a huge deal out of race. And that in itself, I think, hmm. when not done in the right way, can be really bad. Um, and it's... Uh, You know, I mean, maybe the easy way to put it is that, you know, kind of ideally nobody would give a shit if the two people were 
of different races right, right. and the fact that right. we do give such a shit is itself you know done in the wrong way it can be really bad um i think there are yeah. ways to and i can see how it. yeah go ahead how so much of the mainstream porn the porn hub pornography that's interracial is sort of built around reifying and perpetuating the sorts of tropes that you just mentioned yeah and they really do work their way out of Pornhub or pornography into mainstream culture. So I'm thinking particularly of there's a video, a famous video with, I don't know, six or seven uh, big black men and a very small uh, white woman. And there are like, there's an infinite amount of memes built off of this Mm -hmm. one meme that just gets transferred or tossed about on social media so everybody is kind of looking at it over and over and over again and it's Mm -hmm. kind of just getting drilled into your head yeah i mean i think you know in in fairness i should say you know i mean one doesn't want to ignore the fact that i mean i know several interracial couples and there are challenges they face i mean it's it's not easy to be an interracial couple today and there's a lot to be explored there and sort of uh, around sexuality like how does that affect their sexual how does that affect your sexuality and i think there's some good porn that does that but um I, but the the thing you just said reminded me of of probably one of the greatest films uh, pornographic films i know it's uh it's called gloaming uh g l o a m i n g it's directed by a, is that a word yeah uh, yeah it, it, like it, is, it a is a word. word i can't remember exactly what it means i did look it up at some point no, no. i'll look it made, up made by a woman named vex ashley who has a website called a four chambered heart which is a ba- uh, it means dusk dusk huh. yeah okay i'm not sure how that fits the film but anyway it's it's a the film features these two black men and they are they are big men i mean they're incredibly strong and powerful men um you know musculature and the film so she does these very artsy films um and the film is just of them having sex with each other and the first time i showed it to students they were just they just sat there stunned silence until one of the students said that was the most beautiful and tender sex i've ever seen in my life and it's just it's so gentle and loving and caring and the second thing a student said was if you had asked me what two black men that big how they would have sex that's about the last thing i ever would have thought of right and it just blows they've probably been seeing bbc it, it just blows Pornhub and that's it what they blows every you know assumption you have about how large black men would have sex out of the water right and that's what's so powerful about it and i imagine that going into actually what my my next question was going to be you are writing or working on a book that pays attention to quote unquote the transformative potential of queer and feminist pornography and that's you weren't just describing uh queer or feminist pornography or maybe it was feminist pornography on some level but you certainly described the transformative Mm -hmm. power of pornography i also i imagine part of its uh, potential for power comes from uh pornography to 
to you for lack of an actual scientific term and using instead one that's been beaten to death, it really gets right to your lizard brain when mm -hmm. you're watching it. Yeah, I think that's, you know, it that that's one of the So I mean I think the, you know, one way to think of this is that if pornography has the kinds of negative effects that we've been talking about that it can change social and sexual norms for the worse in certain ways if it can affect the way people think about sexuality or experience sexuality for the worse presumably there's no reason it couldn't also have a positive effect you know through whatever the mechanisms are that are that are functioning here and you know i, I unfortunately you know it's it's it is to some extent a matter of getting this stuff in front of people Right. I mean, I've I've seen, you know, firsthand porn in every class. Yeah. The, uh, you know, but <laughs> you don't find this stuff on Pornhub. This is not what you know, if you go to Pornhub, you're not going to find this stuff. You have to pay for it for one thing. Um, it's not freely available. And, you know, so that there there are obstacles, you know, to the practical side of things. But I, I do think that, um, you know, at least if we talk about the potential of pornography to to affect change um you know I, I do think you know it's probably be better if porn weren't sexual edu sex education but if it's going to be then you know maybe we could try to prom you know it, it would be a step in the right direction if we could promote stuff that had a had a different message uh from from most of what people are seeing nowadays but it is out there. It's just well, hard to find. Well, I could see it. Uh, I mean, if we have art classes, uh, something like this could be part of an art class for advanced students. Yeah. I guess you don't probably don't want to. Yeah. I don't be showing it to people who won't appreciate it. Uh, but in particular, what is the transformative potential of queer and feminist pornography as opposed to? typical heterosexual pornography so i do think that um so i think that well-made feminist so you know some debate well over first let me ask you what is yeah. what is feminist yeah, pornography because kind of, I, I i don't know what that yeah, is so people <laughs> tend to use that term to mean um you know pornography that is you know, in some way tr working to, um, that kind of embodies sexual norms that are more feminist in there, right? That promote sexual equality or something like that. Um, it can, it doesn't have to mean that it's kind of gentle and loving or, you know, candles and baths and stuff. I mean, it can be rough, it can be BDSM, it can be all kinds of stuff. But it has to be kind of grounded somehow in the sexual equality of men and women um, and in, in women's right to to a, a robust understanding of their own sexuality. And, you know, unsurprisingly, most of the people making this kind of stuff are women. Um, though there are some men uh, who, have, who have gotten into to doing this kind of work. And, you know, I think. It's a sad fact um, that, you know, simply presenting women as 
as kind of sexual equals with men is it's, it's already a radical thing in our culture. Women, as I, you know, as we were talking about before, I mean, there are lots of ways in which women just aren't men's sexual equals, um, in, in, especially in casual relationships. Um, and so, so I have a graduate student who just finished, uh, who wrote a dissertation on sexual ethics and, a lot of the dissertation is kind of about how we should think of sexual equality. Like what is, what would it, you know, so I think all of most of us anyway, nowadays, you know, if you ask somebody, you know, should men kind of, are men's, is men's sexuality more important than women's sexuality or something? They're going to say, no, of course not. Right. Men and women should be sexual equals, but what does that mean exactly? Like how does that play out in practice? If you go back 150 years you know, sex, so you ask, you know, think of what, what was sex 150 years ago? The answer is kind of intercourse to male orgasm and whatever it takes to get there, right? That's what sex is. As Catherine McKinnon famously said, man, man fucks woman, subject, verb, object, right? The man is the sexual subject. The woman is the sexual object. That's powerful. Yeah, it's a, it's a great quote. It's very, very powerful. Yeah. Um, and... You know, so the first step is to kind of recognize women's sexual subjectivity, right? That women, I mean, that that itself took a lot of getting to, to just recognize that women had sexual, women just weren't just objects of male sexuality. They have their own sexual experience. They have their own right to, a, to an enjoyable sexual experience and so forth. And so in this dissertation, Rachel is her name, um, you know, tries to articulate kind of what does sexual quality amount to? And what she ends up focusing on is, is the question, to, to put it kind of loosely, who's running the show? Like who's making the decisions about what happens? Right. So, you know, me and this person decide we're going to have sex together. What's going to happen after that? Right. What things are we going to do in what order and so forth? And I think typically the person running the show is the guy. I mean, he, he's the one who's make, you know, making proposals, being told yes or no. The woman is sort of constantly in this responsive mode right where she doesn't really have any creative initiative of her own she just is responding to the creative initiative of her partner and so that's what rachel focuses on that sexual equality should amount to what she describes as equal sexual authorship right that we're creating this thing together not one person is kind of creating it for the benefit of the other person and I, I can think of very few films that kind of give a robust sense of this, but to me, the the really the best some of the best examples of pornography I know are ones that give you a real sense of these two people creating something together, right? That each of them is equally empowered to direct the activity, as it were. And it's kind of a back and forth and a give and take, and it's just something that kind of evolves organically. And that that can be its own kind of beauty to watch something like that happen. Um, and that's, you know, so that that to me is like the pinnacle of of getting everything right. But I think you can approach that to, to an extent where you you start to see these two people as equals and not as 
you know, this kind of highly asymmetric relationship that characterizes most heterosexuality. And is that, is the transformative potential its capacity to get the people who watch it to then view things differently? Yeah, that's right. Exactly. What, hmm, what surprises me is that when... I first saw feminist pornography, I thought, okay, lesbian pornography. But it hadn't really occurred to me that it would be heterosexual mm-hmm. pornography. But that is probably a key part of it. I mean, because men are the ones that need to be seeing it a lot of the time. Yeah, that's right. And it's, so, I mean, I think the, the I think a friend of mine, Ann Eaton, who's written about a lot about this kind of stuff, she she says at one point that it's, it's very important that feminist porn should be porn, right? It needs to be hot. It needs to be arousing. It needs to be something people want to watch. And that does involve a certain kind of balancing act because you have to meet people where their sexuality is. You can't just say, here's this ideal sexuality and we're going to do that. You have to somehow start from where we are and drag us into the future. And that that you know different directors have different ways of trying to do that and what you know what's distinctive again of all this work is that it is in some sense and to some extent trying to move you know it embodies certain kinds of values i think um erica lust who's one of probably the most famous feminist pornographer today said in a in this wonderful youtube uh TEDx talk that she gave, she says, you know, the the sex can be dirty, but the values have to be clean. And that really describes her work. I mean, this, sex can be as dirty as you like, you know, but it has to come out of, it has to come out of a place where that's what these people want. And that's, you know, that's, it's serving them equally and not just one of them. Well, we've only gotten to about a quarter of what I had sort of in mind. And then since we've been talking, there are so many other dimensions that I want to go down. But I have another one, another interview that I I need to get ready for. But this has really been such a great conversation. It was even more sort of exciting than I had anticipated. So thanks again for doing this with me. Absolutely. And I would love to. Uh, do a part two at some point if you're if you'd be willing yeah, particularly because we didn't get to talk about uh gender identity mm-hmm. which was the second half of what i'm curious about right now right so yeah well, let so me thanks know. again this is awesome thank you